Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of In Depth with Beth and Seth, a podcast from Plymouth Congregational Church in Minneapolis, in which we take a deeper dive into the sermon preached usually the day before or a couple of days prior on the Sunday closest to this recording. My name is Beth Hoffman Faith. I am the Minister for Congregational Care and Worship at Plymouth, and I am, as always, joined by my treasured colleague, even though he's far away today. Hi, Seth. Good morning. I am sort of far away. I am in Chicago here for my other job through the University of Chicago, and I'm in a hotel with really terrible internet connection. So if you hear glitchiness in this recording, it's you can blame it on the premium internet from this hotel that costs $20 for nothing very good. My name is Seth Patterson, and I am your Minister for Spiritual Formation and Theater, and you are also a treasured colleague, Beth. Mm, thank you. Thank you. I will confess to you all, our listeners, that usually Seth and I can see each other as we're recording this uh, on Zoom, which is uh, how we have done this podcast from day one. But today, because of this internet, we are not. We turned our cameras off. So I have to say I'm feeling a little alone, Seth, because I can't see your face <laughs> while I'm talking to you. But we're just going to make the best of it because we need to talk about your sermon from yesterday, October 17th, 2021. A sermon preached called Sins or Debts, and the text was a version or some version of the Lord's Prayer found in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, and this was chosen by you, and as you pulled the scripture out of the bowl as we continue our Command to Preach series, in which you, our listeners, and others are commanding us to preach by submitting interesting scripture choices for us uh, to compose our sermons. So, Seth, how did you feel when you <laughs> pulled that slip of paper out of the bowl and it said the Lord's Prayer? So this submission came from our friend Parker Trostel, and she submitted it with the two places that what we now call the Lord's Prayer found in the Bible, in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. And, and she says something like she recites this every night before she goes to sleep and she really lingers on the forgiveness piece. And then because I had a couple weeks when we pulled it, I let it just sit because I really didn't know what to say about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I believe you preached on it a couple years ago when we made a change from starting it with our father to tender loving God. Is that right? Do I remember that correctly? Hmm. Well, it's <laughs> possible. <laughs> I was going to bring up our, our sort of history with the Lord's Prayer at Plymouth and a failed experiment at one point when we were worshiping in the theater, during which we invited people to say whatever version of the Lord's Prayer we gave, like four different options. That did not go over very well. No. <laughs> <laughs> people no. didn't like that. So I do remember that. And so you you let it kind of sit and you kind of let it uh, stew. And then it came to this week when you had to actually put a paper. Put <laughs> well, and interestingly, when I contacted Parker to say, hey, I pulled, I pulled your submission. Would you be willing to read it? Do you have any further thoughts? Her response was something like, ah, oh, that's maybe not the best submission. Why don't you switch it to Covenant? And then she, <laughs> which, which I don't know, we're making up our own rules. So I don't want to say we are are or are not allowed to do anything, but I really wanted to stick with the original idea, mm -hmm. which is that I will, we will preach on whatever is written on the piece of paper, whether we like it or not. 
And I guess my concern with this was just that it's something that's so known. And I think even Parker said, it's what what new is there to say about it? And as a preacher, you always want to try to find at least some new way into it that hasn't been done. And I, I wasn't sure that that was possible, but I guess I was up for the challenge well, to see what could be said about this that maybe hasn't been said before. But I, I'm not sure how much really has been said. I mean, I think this is one of those things that's so rote to many people. Now we also know we have a whole generation or two for whom this prayer isn't as familiar. True. You know, uh, but for a good percentage of our congregation, yes, they are accustomed to saying this prayer weekly. Some people use it daily. But how many of us really take the time to think about what it is we're saying? I mean, I think this prayer has power in that it's it's become sort of the universal prayer for Christianity. So at any one time that we're saying it uh, as a congregation, perhaps hundreds or thousands of other congregations are saying it too, and those words sort of unite us. But have we really spent a lot of time breaking it down and thinking about what these words mean and how we received them as we have them? Because they're not Obviously, as you pointed out yesterday, we do not say that which is scripted in the Bible. We, no. we say a version of it. Yeah, and that, that version has been brought to us more by tradition than than scripture. So it's interesting. This is one of those few places, if not the only place, that the Bible has Jesus saying explicitly, this is how you pray. All mm-hmm. right. So, I mean, that holds some extra value or extra weight, I guess, when when we have that being said. And it's and it happens twice in Matthew and in Luke. But I think about this every single time because as I confessed in my sermon, I don't which meaning out of the way that Plymouth says part of it, which is using the words debts and debtors. So if I'm not leading it, if I'm not the one having to be the, the forward voice on it, I will say sins and those who sin against us because I can make more meaning out of that. So I think about the Lord's Prayer every single week because I'm thinking I'm changing this. What does that do for us corporately if I'm changing part of it when I say it? Well, that's really interesting because uh, last evening I had dinner with my my brother and sister and mom, and it's not very many occasions where we're all at the same table because my siblings are out of town. My brother happens to be in town uh, because of my mom's recent surgery, but he and my mom watched the service yesterday. And my brother is a practicing Buddhist, but grew up in a Christian home. And he was really taken by your sermon. And he said to me, yeah, that debt and debtors thing. When we used to say it as kids, I used to think, why, why is money a part of this prayer? He said, I've always gravitated towards sins. He said, it just makes so much more sense to me. So you are not alone in your preference and desire to name what, you know, when we say debt and debtors, we're also alluding to sins, but I hear that you really want to name that. Yeah. And, and the word directly from Greek translates to debts. I mean, mm-hmm. that is the most direct translation. The word is a means debts in Greek. But as all translation does, we lose some of the nuance and the full, like that word means debts, but it means it in a very large sort of spectrum of ways. Whereas when we say debts now, especially in our capitalistic modern society, it has a different sense to it. So the the deeper meaning is really debts in terms of um, how you're indebted to somebody based on your actions towards them, which in our modern language is 
closer to sin mm. when we make mistakes or hurt people. So even though debts is the direct translation, I think sins probably gets to the intention of the word a little bit better. Indeed. Words matter, especially right now. I want to return in a few minutes to this idea of covenant because you begin and end, you frame the sermon around covenant, but you spend a good portion of the sermon sort of analyzing, giving us analysis of the Lord's prayer. When you said that this is what you're going to do, I thought, oh my goodness, it's going to be like a 45 minute sermon. You did it very concisely, uh, really well. But my question for you is when you were doing this and doing this study and writing it, did something surprise you as you yourself sort of broke down this prayer and, and delved into it a little deeper? Yeah. Uh, so I spent a lot of time looking at the original Greek or what we have and as, as, as an assumption of the original Greek. So to give a quick bit of text analysis scholarship, what we have as what we call the original Greek source is um, usually a amalgamation of lots of fragments that we have put together trying to find what was probably the original way of it being written down. Both Matthew and Luke were written probably 80 to 100 years after Jesus had died. Then based on oral tradition, what we now call the book of Mark and another source that we haven't found that we call Q. So we don't know exactly what the, we don't have an original copy of this. Rather, it's put together from a lot of places, but you can find what scholars think is the closest approximation to the original Greek. So I started looking at all the words and really what they mean more deeply than the surface level. So a few of them stuck out to me. The first one was father. And, and I brought this up in the sermon is that when we say our father, that is truly a direct translation from Greek. Pater mm. is the word for father, but it is a stand-in. It has been translated from Aramaic in a word that doesn't have as much gender attached to it and really means like the begetter or the originator or mm. parent. Mm. And that opens up the original meaning that if this is something that Jesus actually said, he would have said, pray our originator, our parent and father is just the stand in that we use for that. And mm. because I, I struggle as we did at Plymouth, when we changed this around gendering God. Right. And just to broaden that word, you know, father, I don't know how we cannot genderize the word. So when right. we remove it and take the broader understanding of it uh, to me that, I don't know, it just, it makes the prayer more powerful. So really good observation. And I'm glad that you lifted that up because we at Plymouth have changed that first line to tender, loving God. And I think our Plymouthites are fairly conditioned to that now, but that wasn't without some pain and discomfort too. No. And that's why I thought you had preached on it before, which was around that change. I think that Paula preached on it actually. Could be. I think it was Paula. Now that I'm trying to go back in the recesses of my brain, anything else that <laughs> well, stands other... out for you in the, in the analysis piece of your sermon? Yeah. The, the word for heaven really stuck out to me because when we say heaven and the word again is a direct translation of the word heaven, but it also in the Hebrew that the Greek is taken from doesn't mean heaven in the way that we have now constructed it as this other place, this somewhere else thing, but really it meant the atmosphere, mm. the everything around us, the air. And that is really powerful for me that the idea is instead of heaven being something away, but rather is 
the very atmosphere and air that we exist in. Well, I think that's one of the most powerful pieces here in your analysis is you, you take thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And going back to the Greek, you translate it to your authority arrive, your desire be made true here with us as it is also in the atmosphere of God around us. And as you mentioned, that <laughs> doesn't a, just just doesn't trip off your tongue very easily, but no, boy, does that ex- expand that meaning in a way that I'm thinking about the person you know who doesn't want to use the word heaven. I wonder if that person yeah. would gravitate to this this language that is just so much more inclusive and also expands the meaning. Again, I think because we have just most of us who have been conditioned in the church just say this prayer so rotely without thinking one iota about what it means. It just trips off our tongue, right? It's really easy to say because we've we've been saying it for most of our lives. But to pause and to really think about what we're saying, what we are praying when we say these words is deeply powerful. Well, I know we only have a, a few minutes left, Seth. So I want to ask about the way you framed this analysis of the Lord's Prayer, which I think is really, really important, and if people haven't heard uh, the sermon yet, I encourage you to go to Plymouth.org and find it or to our YouTube channel. Uh, it may also be helpful for you to read the transcript, which will be posted uh, this week on the website as well. But you frame the analysis with this idea of covenant, and you're very clear in your opening words, which I thought were was a great lead in about how even though you're a lover of foreshadowing, you're going to lay it out the end for us right now. So you, you <laughs> I'm make going vi- to be not subtle, <laughs> not subtle. And you make three very powerful statements about covenant. And then you return to it at the end following your discussion of the Lord's Prayer. And I just wonder why you did that and how how the prayer led you to do that a few things. One is you and I, all of all three of us have heard multiple times from people that sometimes all they want to hear is to be reminded that they are loved unconditionally. And Mm -hmm. and so that sits in the back of my head a lot. How can we continue to do that? And instead of framing it that God loves them unconditionally, but that I will do the work of love for them, for us, for me. So that's part of it that just sits in the back of my head. The other part is Connecting the prayer to covenant is, I mentioned this, and I don't think that I made these connections very well because I was trying to move fast after all, all that analysis, and I didn't want it to be a 45-minute sermon. But years ago, I read, and I'm, it's now been somebody substantiated it, Nadia Boltzweber wrote in her book, Pastrix, about how in Lutheranism, they, they do a lot of creeds, which we do not do, but also the Lord's Prayer, and that people cannot speak the parts that are meaningless to them and say the parts that are, and yet the whole thing is still said by the corporate body, that the whole meaning of it is still held by us all, even if I am not speaking all of it aloud. And so when I, when I complicate something like the Lord's Prayer for us and open it up, and maybe some people think, well, then what's the point if it can mean all these other things? The point is that we are doing something together And you can say it in the way that is helpful, meaningful, useful to you, that fits your beliefs. And it doesn't make the entire prayer fall apart. Rather, the whole thing is still being said by us all, even though each of us may say different things. Like I say sins instead of debts. I don't say the thys. I take out the King James 
words when I say it, your mm-hmm. kingdom come, your will be done, uh, because it makes more sense to me. And that is for me the definition of, or a definition of covenant, that we are collectively together speaking in one voice, yet all saying what is meaningful for us in that different voice and covenanting that we are able to be us together, even though people may completely disagree with my sins instead of debts. That word may be harmful to them. They may have trauma associated with sins, but they can still do the hard work of loving me, even though I'm saying different words and they Mm -hmm. don't like it. And so covenant, and we are a covenant community, and that's how we can one way that it can manifest. And that's loving each other, even if we don't like or disagree with each other. I, we hear too much about, I don't like, and then mm. that, and that, that is a, not a very useful framework for conversation. Well, thank you for inviting us to think about that. You, you write, we do not need to agree with each other to stand in prayer together, to which I say, amen. We do not need to say the same thing to stand in community together. Indeed. And you asked some really important questions at the end of the sermon, which is what I'll leave our listeners with uh, today. What is your covenant in this community, you ask? When we speak the Lord's Prayer together, over what parts do you linger? How do you seek forgiveness? How do you forgive? How do you do the work of love? Wow. We could write a sermon on each one of those questions, Seth. That, that's really, well, really, re- <laughs> really good. And in the end, that's that's all I really wanted to, to say. Those are the questions that I wanted to ask. Is, well, thank you. Thank you for yeah. preaching a sermon that was not only a teaching sermon, which I think is really important. And I, I really hope everyone who listens or reads this sermon will come away with a new understanding of the Lord's Prayer, but also to invite us to think deeper about uh, how this prayer might be an example of our covenant and uh, how do we stand together even when we do not agree? What does what does that mean in our covenanted community? Thanks, Seth. Good luck with the rest of your time in Chicago. I'll look forward to welcoming you. you back later in the week. Thanks all I for listening. To coming back. Yes. Be in touch with us. Uh, we would love to hear Always. from you. Always. Yeah. Talk to us. We want to hear from you. Be well all.